If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4. You have God's Word open before you. Would you join me, please, in a word of prayer? Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has been suggested by some that the Bible discriminates against women. It has even been alleged that the Apostle Paul was the outstanding chauvinist of his time. And one person went so far as to suggest that the Apostle Paul actually hated women. Such statements, however, are based on an unfortunate but sometimes deliberate misunderstanding of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the Bible holds women in high regard, and wherever the gospel has been preached, the status of women has riven, risen significantly. Frequently on the pages of the Bible, we meet women of remarkable skill and intellect. Perhaps none more capable than the extraordinary woman that we're going to take a, a brief look at this morning in chapter 4 of the book of Judges. She was unique. And that person, of course, is Deborah. To understand Deborah, we need to understand something of the times in which she lived. The book of Judges, if you read through it, it's something of a spiritual merry-go-round. At least that's how I refer to it often. The same things happen over and over and over and over again. The nation of Israel never learned the lessons. But the cycle was sin by the nation, servitude by the nation, and then salvation. The first time God's people went into sin, got involved with Baal and with all that went along with Baal. The first time God raised up Othniel. That's an unusual name, isn't it? But that's the man that God raised up to deliver Israel. But sadly enough, when Othniel died, Israel turned right back into Baal worship, into paganism, and to all that went along with that. And God allowed them to go into servitude. God brought a man by the name of Eglon, the king of Moab, to subjugate them. And for 18 years, because of their apostasy, because of their sin, Eglon ground the nation Israel under his heel until finally the Israelites cried out to God for salvation. And God sent deliverance in the person of a man by the name of Ehud to be their political leader and their liberator and their judge. After repeated cycles of this kind of thing, of sin, of servitude, of salvation, one might think Israel would learn the lesson, but they didn't. Israel was stubborn, they were hard-headed, and they were slow to learn any of God's lessons. One of Satan's greatest lies is that 
sin is liberating. And the truth is that sin is captivating. It will enslave, and it never fails to do that on whatever level, in whatever age. Sin captures people. Israel didn't learn it. They were enslaved. And again, after years, another time in captivity, they were set free. But again, they turned to Baal worship and to all that went along with it. And this time, God brought a king, a king of the uh, to, to, to subjugate all of Israel. His name was Jabin. And he was aided by a brilliant general. Sisera was his name. Now, with that little bit of background, look with me at Judges chapter 4, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So this, as I said, was, it's a cyclical thing. Sin led to servitude. Israel would cry out to the Lord, and sometimes after 18, 20 years, uh, God would deliver them, and then uh, they were free, but they would go back into it. So chapter 4, verse 1 says, Again, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Haroim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. See, there's the part of the cycle that's going on here. Servitude, and then the children of Israel called to the Lord. Why? Well, the leader of the army who'd subjugated them had 900 iron chariots. And he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So in these two cycles that I've mentioned... One, they were subjugated uh, for 18 years. They didn't get the lesson. Now they were subjugated for 20 years and still didn't get the lesson. Militarily, Israel was confronted by two awesome facts. First of all, Jabin had 900 chariots as well as a large impressive military army. Now, 900 chariots doesn't sound like much in our day. I mean, uh, our country and countries around the world spend billions of dollars on armaments every single year. So it doesn't sound like much to us. But in that day, that was the latest military technology. The chariots made it impossible for Israel to defend their own territory. Their military position was nothing less than absolutely appalling. Israel was outmanned. Israel was outgunned. Israel was outpositioned. They not only lacked any iron chariots, but they lacked virtually any iron weapons. I'll not go over to ask you to turn over to read it right now, but in chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They had nothing. And they were facing a country that had 900 chariots, plus all of the military. Humanly speaking, their, 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 their situation was hopeless. 
Absolutely hopeless. A nation without arms up against a nation armed to the teeth. But despite all of the external appearances, Israel's real problem was not military, but spiritual. At this point in their history, Israel didn't need chariots. They didn't need spears. They didn't need swords. They didn't need shields. What they needed was a living faith in God and a determination to follow God's leading in their nation. That's what they needed. God was about to answer their need. This time he did something unusual. He did not go to an Othniel, who'd been a previous leader, nor to an Ehud, who'd been their political leader and judge, to teach them that they needed to put their faith and trust in God. He chose a woman to be the deliverer of his people. Naturally speaking, that's the last place the nation Israel would have looked. But she was God's answer to their need. That brings us to Deborah and a bit about her background. The little bit that we know. There are many things that we don't know about her. For example, we are told nothing about her family. We don't know anything about her tribe that she was from. We know nothing about her ancestry. We do know the name of her husband. His name was Lipidoth. But beyond that, Scripture is silent about him. So we know very little about this woman, Deborah, and about her husband. Two things that we do know. One, that she was a prophetess. Now, a prophet or a prophetess is one who received revelation from God and dispensed that revelation to the people. It might have been a revelation about the future, or it could have been things about the present day that they were living in. A prophet could do that because he was filled with God the Holy Spirit. And God was revealing truth to him about either the present day or about a future day. It was God, it was only God, who put an individual in the position of a prophet or a prophetess. In the entire Old Testament... Only two other women were said to have the gift of prophetess. One was Miriam, the sister of Moses, back in Exodus chapter 20. And the other was Huldah, a woman who spoke for God during the time of Josiah in 2 Kings. And then Deborah. So we know that she was a prophetess. The Word of God tells us that. Someone who received a message from revelation from God... And who dispensed that revelation. The second fact that we learn about Deborah is that she was a judge. Look at verse 5. Judges 4 verse 5. And she used to sit under a palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. For she, for the sons of Israel came to her for judgment. People came streaming out to her. To have her hear their cases and to render judgment. She was, in fact, the center of political and judicial life in the nation. Now, these two facts that she was a prophetess, that she was a judge made Deborah unique. There was never another time in the nation of Israel 
when God chose to use a woman in such broad fashion. Deborah had been chosen by God. She had been called by God. She had been raised up by God. And she had been empowered by God. She was a leader. She was a woman of insight. She was a woman of great wisdom. And she was a judge and a prophetess. It's hardly surprising to discover that this unique woman had some outstanding gifts as a leader. And I would like to mention four of them this morning. First of all, Deborah saw the need and was committed to doing something about it. She was a woman who refused to accept the status quo. Look at verses 6 and 7. We've already read part of these. Verse 6. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Benoam, and from Kadesh, Nephtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and with his many troops to the river Kishon. And notice, and I will give him into your hand. She saw a need and was committed to doing something about it. She refused to accept the status quo. The second thing about Deborah and her leadership is that she enlisted help. We've seen this already, but again, 4 6 A, chapter 4, verse 6, first part of the verse. Now she sent and summoned Barak. Israel had a military problem, no question about that. And Israel needed, and Deborah needed, a military helper. So she sent for the best person that she knew of, best person that she could find, a man by the name of Barak. And everything that follows shows that he was a gifted military leader. As a leader, Deborah was wise enough to know the value of a team and perceptive enough to recognize both her own limitations and Barak's strengths. So she recognized her situation. She recognized Israel's needs. She recognized Barak's strengths. One mark of a leader is that he or she is aware of personal talents and abilities and equally realistic about his or her limitations. So a leader recruits help. A leader builds a team. And Deborah did just that. Third thing about this woman, she motivated help. Verses 8 and 9. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak may have been gifted. But apparently, at least it seems to me, that in this verse that we've just read, uh, he had a twinge of fear. He had some apprehensions about doing this. And frankly... Uh, I, I, I can understand that. I mean, look at the, look at the enemy. 
Look at who they were. Look at where they were. Look at how strong they were. Look at their military leader. Look at their king. And they had subjugated all of the northern kingdom of Israel. Deborah deliberately set out to motivate him and to encourage him. She saw a need. She enlisted help. And she motivated him. Now, how did she motivate him? How is she going to get him to, 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 to go and to do what God had commanded? Well, first of all, she confronted him with God's command. Verse 6 again, and we're kind of camping here, but verse 6, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded. So she confronted her military leader with God's command. Basically saying, Barak, this is God's will. It's not mine. It's not an option. This is a requirement of God. This is God's direction for us. So she confronted him with God's command. Second, she strengthened him with God's promise. Notice again verse 7. I will draw out to you Sisera. And then I will, end of the verse, I will give him into your hands. She strengthened him with God's promise. It's God speaking, I will draw him out. It's God speaking, I will give victory here. I will empower you. And then third, she promised her presence. She encouraged Barak with her presence. Now again, I, I wonder about what was in Barak's mind, but what we know for sure is, Barak says in verse 8, if you will go with me, I will go. If you will not go, I will not go. Personally, I am somewhat convinced that Barak knew that if she went, the people would rally around her. They knew her. She was a judge. And uh, I I believe um, he knew if her presence was with him, that the people would rally to her. All right. She saw a need. She enlisted help. She motivated that help. And the fourth thing that she did was she developed a plan. Uh, And that's, again, explained for us in verses 6 and 7. Almost anyone can see a need. It doesn't take a genius to see a need. But to develop a specific plan is another matter. Barak, she tells him in verse 6 and 7 that uh, he was to recruit 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun. They were to march to a specific place, Mount Tabor, which is on the plains of Esdralon, not far from the headquarters of Sisera. Her plan was to meet Sisera head-on at his strongest point in a pitched battle. It would be near the kingdom, the, the uh, Kishon River. Deborah was very specific. In all these ways... She demonstrated outstanding talents and gifts as a leader. But having said all of that, I don't think we have come to the heart of this unusual woman. What made her unique? Two things that I would suggest, and you can go through here and you can find others. But two things I want to suggest that made her unique. One was her faith. For only by faith in God could Deborah have done what she did. And seeing the need and and all that she did with her helper, 
her military strength, her military arm. And she says to him in verse 14 of chapter 4, Deborah said to Barak, Arise for this day, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Giving credit to God for this. But she's telling him, Get on with it. Arise. Go. The Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away. What made her unique? Her faith. Her faith. Second, what did she think of herself? Judges chapter 5 and verse 7. This is the key thing that I want to leave with you this morning. Many of you know about this woman, Deborah. But what did she think of herself? Chapter 5, verse 7. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose. And in the last words of verse 7, a mother in Israel. A woman gifted, a prophetess, a judge. What did she think of herself more than anything else? Was she boastful because she was a prophetess? No. She had just won one of the greatest battles in the history of the nation Israel. Was she proud of that? Was she boastful about that? Until I rose a mother in Israel. I find that remarkable. Most important thing this woman thought about herself was she was a mother. Deborah was right in a life that was used marvelously to deliver the people of God. Most important aspect of her life, she says, a mother in Israel. Now, why is that true? I would suggest the reason is this. At least one reason is, it, is this. There is nothing closer and more representative of the love of God than the love of a mother. Nothing closer to and more representative of the love of God than the love of a mother. The Bible says love is patient. It is kind. It is not jealous. It doesn't brag. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account suffered wrong. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. That's what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians 13. What changed the course of Israel at this point in history that we're reading about in Judges 4? A mother. I refuse to believe anything else other than the love of a mother can still change the course of a nation. Moms, thank you.
During the course of the week, I've thought of moms a whole lot. I don't know a tenth of what any mother endures. Frankly, I'm not sure I want to know. Moms, you know, and you don't shy away. Why? Yours represents and is as closest closest to the, the love of God that we will know on this earth. Mom, we love you. We thank God for you. We try to be mindful of all the things that you have contributed to us. We fail that, but we think about it. And at least one day a year, we want to say a very, very heartfelt, Mother, thank you. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for the love of a mother, for her faithfulness to you, for the many, many, countless ways, in fact, that mothers express and show their love to us faithfully, without fail, never shirking. We thank you for all the moms who are here. Most of us in this room would say, if it were not for my mother, there's no telling where I would be today. Thank you, Father. And would you suit a special blessing to the mothers that are here for worship this Lord's Day, this Mother's Day. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you would please take your hymnal and we're going to sing about a Christian home. Number 535 in your hymnal. 535. Mother, if you're here today and uh, your family doesn't take you to lunch, let me know. I'll write them a bad letter. (laughs) It's good to see you. Pardon? (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have gotten started down there. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, fellowship, open his word, encourage one another, and allow God to speak and encourage our hearts. This is a special day, a good day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Moms, we have carnations, red carnations for every mom who's here in the foyer. Please take a moment. Uh, I'm going to get a couple of young ladies to help me. Jenny, you come on too, sweetheart. You two right here. Come on with me. I'll put you to work. Mm, <laughs> Jenny, come on, sweetie. One other thing, and, uh, you know, uh, preachers go by the old saying, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I, there's a mother here I've got to recognize this morning. Um, I know her. I got to know her. 
in a, in a very difficult situation, the homegoing of her husband of many years. Uh, Kevin, your mom's right beside you, isn't she? God bless you, dear. You want to meet a sweet, dear, loving Christian lady. Say hello to her before she gets gone. Kevin, don't rush off with her. You can take her to lunch when everybody's through talking to her. <laughs> All right. Tim, if you'll come, please, and dismiss us with prayer. We'll sing God be with you till we meet again, and moms will have a, a flower for you. Let's pray. God in heaven, I know in my life the greatest blessing you ever gave me, short of my salvation, was a godly mother. I thank you that she loved me and persevered with me through thick and thin. And I know I wouldn't be here without her. And God, I thank you that my children have a godly mother. And Lord, I do pray for the influence of godly mothers in this church on their children that you will magnify it for their sake, as I was blessed by it. And God, for the work of a child evangelism fellowship, we do pray uh, for these children that probably don't have godly mothers and fathers to do the work that this fellowship does. We pray for them that it be effective and pleasing to you and beneficial to these children. And as always, Lord, as we leave today, let it be said that we were glad to be in the house of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.